This week on Physio Foundations, I'm talking to Narelle Dalwood from Monash University Physiotherapy about the pathway into neurological physiotherapy and the foundational knowledge and skills involved in being a neurological physiotherapist. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast for another week. It's a podcast about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. And this week, I've got a colleague and a good friend of mine from Monash University Physiotherapy here, Narelle Dalwood. So Narelle is an APA titled neurological physiotherapist, a clinical educator, and a lecturer within the Bachelor of Physiotherapy course at Monash Physio, where we work side by side. And Narelle is one of the leads of the neurology program at Monash Physio and also the lead of the simulation program, which we're going to talk about in the next episode, the week after next, in part two of our conversation. In part one, we're going to be having a chat about neurological physiotherapy, foundational knowledge and skills. And I'm really grateful for Narelle's time and really looking forward to this chat. So Narelle Dalwood, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thank you, Luke. Great to be here. Good to see you. How are you going, first of all, before we get into the content? Yeah, B- good, good. Getting very busy time of year. Um, as you said, I do teach into the bachelor program. I also teach into the doctoral program as well. So there's always, a, you know, a bit of an overlap there. And yeah, it's it's always a busy time of year at the university. You can say that at any time of year in any job, can't you, if you're working hard Ex- enough? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we know you, are, you work really hard in physio education and a lot of people listening to this podcast, because I've been looking at where all the listeners are from and and um, and who likes and and um, shares episodes and everything. So we've got a lot of Monash Uni physio grads and you're very popular among, among the, hi, the students and the grads. So <laughs> hi from Narelle. For those who don't know you though, can you give everyone around the world um, a bit of a brief introduction to your background and current interests? Sure. Yeah, so... If you'd like my background into neurological physiotherapy, I'll start right at the start, if you like. Um, I didn't get into physio (laughs) straight from school. Um, So that was the first hurdle in my my long pathway. the my the way that I did get into physio and it, remembering everybody that this was a long time ago um, was that I became an allied health assistant. So I was a physiotherapy assistant at the Royal Children's Hospital for 12 months where I worked in the CF unit, um, which was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Um, gave me a, a huge insight into physiotherapy, made me even more determined that that is absolutely what I wanted to do. Um, I was going to be a cardiothoracic physiotherapist. I was going to work with children with CF for the rest of my days once I got in. Um, so I did get into physio, um, then realised that there was actually lots of other areas of physio and the one area of physio that I really didn't want to do because I really didn't enjoy it at uni was neurological physiotherapy. <laughs> didn't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't understand it. I thought it was weird um, and it was hard. It was really complex and you know, I just sort of firmed my resolve that I was going to be a physiotherapist working with children with CF. Uh, Then I graduated. I was fortunate enough to get a new grad role at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, I rotated through all the various sort of units at the Royal Melbourne um, over about 18 months. And I was lucky enough within that 18 months to do, I started with a rehabilitation um, rotation 
um, at Essendon Rehab, which doesn't actually exist anymore. Um, and then I came to I came back to the Royal Melbourne campus, the acute campus, and worked on the stroke unit for four months, um, and then on the neurology and neurosurgery unit for four months. Um, and that was it. I was sold. My mind was completely changed. Um, so after that, I went over to the UK. I worked over in the UK. Um, I was fortunate enough at that point with the, the way the employment situation was in the UK back then, um, they were desperate for physios. They loved Australian trained physios. Uh, the fact that I had that 18 months experience postgrad uh, was very, very beneficial for me over there. And I was able to say, I still remember speaking to, because back then um, you could get work through an agency, so sort of temping work. Um, and I remember the agency, the woman, the agency saying, what sort of physiotherapist are you? And I said, mm, I'm a neurological physiotherapist. I wasn't really, but it's what I wanted to be. Um, and so I was able to really, um, you know, work in that area in the UK as well and get some fantastic experience over there. Um, I could talk a lot about that experience too, but I'm not sure how much, how much your listeners need to know and how much time we've got. Um, after working and living in the UK and travelling in the UK for a couple of years, I came home, um, did some locum work, did some musk work, did some more cardio work because I think that's really important, you know, for any physiotherapist, but um, perhaps particularly for a neurophysio, I think you need that wide variety of skills. Um, never worked with children again after my, my allied health assistant role all those years previously. Um and then was seconded across to work at Melbourne Uni. I started uh, teaching or lecturing at Melbourne Uni uh, in about 1998, I think. Um, and then I was sort of sold on that too. Once I started teaching students, I'd obviously worked with students a lot clinically up until that point and really enjoyed working with students. Um, working with students and educating students at the university was a whole different ballgame, but one that I just loved and I was lucky enough to combine my clinical work and my academic work or continue to for, for many, many years. Um, and then I started working at Monash in 2008. So I combined the two universities for a while. I worked at both universities for a while, um, but I've been, I've been just at Monash University since I think about 2012. Um, so that's, that's sort of the story. That's a great so summary. It's, it's a long and windy road and you <laughs> didn't know you, you were sold on one thing and then you moved yeah. in another, another direction and you didn't want to yeah. do neuro. No. There There's a spanner oh. in the works. No, not in a million years. Um, I just found, hmm, I'm not sure. It just didn't click with me as a student. I must admit I had a really good neuro placement, clinical placement in fourth year in a rehab centre in Hampton, which also doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I had a, I worked with a great clinician there and had some really good experiences. So, but at university itself, no, I, it was far too complex. Um, and yeah, I just, I just didn't understand it. It didn't capture me at all until I actually started working with some absolutely fantastic clinicians and just some incredible patients. And then, um, everything changed. I think me. there's something in that for students who are listening and sure. are thinking about what what in what areas of physiotherapy interest them the most and just have a yeah. think about that. You don't have to have an answer to that question because experience counts for a lot and your experience mm -hmm. will change you and will shape you and will push you in different directions, being open to 
opportunities is really important as well. So then, so you originally didn't want to be a neurophysio. Now you're a highly passionate, highly experienced clinician educator. So what sort of clinical special interests do you have and what, what are your favorite areas of neurological physio? Sure. So my favorite area, because I was a new graduate graduate at Royal Melbourne, um, those rotations I was talking about, apart from that one rehab rotation I did, um, everything else was in the acute setting. Um, so I was working in the high dependency unit with people who had had neurosurgery the day before. I was working the stroke unit. Um, so that was fantastic experience. When I went across to the UK, one of the um, roles that I was a approached for in my second year there was at a facility called the Royal Hospital and Home in Putney. Um, I went for, the, I remember going for the interview. I walked up to this building. It's one of those incredible old buildings in London and Putney. And it still had above the doorway, it still had carved in stone above the doorway, the home for the incurables. Wow. And I thought, and that's what its name had been before it became the Royal Hospital and Home in Putney. And I walked in. It was a facility for uh, very people with very long-term um, brain injury, either acquired or traumatic, sorry, acquired or congenital. So there were people with, um, you know, severe brain injury in sort of vegetative states. There were people... Um, you know, long-term MS, really, really dependent impaired patients. I had the interview with the um, manager. I looked around the ward and I said, oh, Gaynor, thanks. Lovely to meet you, but this is just not my thing. I can't do it. It's not my experience. I'm much more acute based. Um, anyway, she was a very persuasive person. <laughs> uh, she asked me, she practically begged me. I think they were pretty desperate for staff, begged me to give it a try. Um, I loved it. I was there for 12 months. It was amazing. Wow, that was a um, bit of a crossroads for you then. Yeah. At that point in time. Absolutely. But I must say after that experience working with those um, people with really long-term and really significant um, neurological impairments, it I, I did love it. I had an amazing time. I learned so much. The patients were incredible. Um, my colleagues were amazing. I learned so much from everyone around me, um, particularly, well, as well as the physios, but particularly the speech therapists, the occupational therapists, the nursing staff, the medical staff. Everyone was so skilled and so passionate in working with these people. Um, but I actually came home to Melbourne and went, no, I, it is acute. It is I want to work in the acute setting. So for me, it's it's very fast paced. I love sort of the fast paced of the acute setting. Um, I love the sometimes the life or death stuff, you know, uh, without trying to sound trite. It's, um, you know, that, that the acuteness of an acute setting um, really captures me. And also the fact that you're, you're really reliant on each other as a team, um, which I think you should be certainly in any type of healthcare setting. Um, but I really felt it very, very much. I mean, because the team's all around you all the time, like you're, you're doing the ward rounds together or you're standing in the um, in the nurse's station together or, you you know, you're liaising with, with other colleagues all the time. Um, and I really like starting the journey with the patient and their family from that sometimes day zero, you know, they had the stroke in the morning and that's now the afternoon. Um, 
starting people on their journey to for sorry to rehabilitate rehabilitation and recovery um is yeah is really what i i think i'm good at and and what i really enjoy so what are the skills then that make you good at that and it's obviously so much more than knowledge of pathophysiology and anatomy and assessment skills you're working with people not just the person affected by the condition but everyone in your team their family everyone who's involved so what are the broad skills then that um, make somebody better in that position in that role in that physiotherapy role empathy Mm. (laughs) empathy springs to mind um that ability to perhaps step into the patients and 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 the family's shoes Mm. um I struggled with that a little bit, actually. I probably struggled um, a lot with that when I was a new graduate working on the neurosurgical unit at Royal Melbourne Hospital. I'm sorry, I've always been a very empathic person, but Mm. it was almost too much for me um, sometimes, Uh, especially when you're working in a neurosurgical unit. Um, You know, back then I was in my early 20s. Uh, So the cases that I found really difficult were the case, you know, the people who'd had car accidents and things or diving accidents who, who mm. were a similar age. Um, so empathy can, you know, it, it, it is certainly an extraordinarily important skill for all health professionals in whatever facility they're working in with whatever patients they're working with. Um, I think teamwork, you know, that, that recognition, that acknowledgement, like true recognition and true recognition, uh, sorry, acknowledgement of, of other people, your team members' um, skills and attributes and and really working collaboratively. Um, you know, this is crisis time for people. This is crisis time for the patient and their family when it when it's really acute, whatever it is that's happened. Um, and they need a team that functions incredibly well together, um, that is seamless, that has really open, transparent communication that are all really good at what they do and that always, always, always puts the patient and their family at the centre of everything they do. I think that's really important. Mm, on their worst day of that person's life and their family's yeah, life. Absolutely. It's not just fluff or perhaps icing on the cake to say, well, let's have empathy and let's no. have some soft skills, so, so-called soft skills. Oh, I can't stand that word. Yeah, I can't stand that word. They're term. actually the most fundamental <laughs> foundational yeah. skill you can have is to be able to talk to people and and, yeah. and that empathy you know in the last episode it's it's funny how you get runs of things um brian kim one of our grads was on yeah. the podcast in the new new grad series that i've started and then to continue on interviewing other grads for their experiences so we're not just having people with multiple decades of experience on and just getting looking at all parts of that experience from therapists and and practitioners and he brought up empathy as well Although a different level of seriousness, um, so talking about in a musculoskeletal private practice, but that the importance of having empathy and, um, and then the balance, we're talking about the balance between having too much empathy, which is what you were talking about before Mm. and not being able to to detach. Yeah. Being detached sounds harsh, but it's actually what you need to do in order to use your empathy to help people. That's that's a really interesting point. Uh, What other core skills? come into play there. So we're talking about your specialty and your clinical interests. So the acute care of somebody in those early days after, for example, a stroke, yeah. um, what other knowledge and skills do you use every day or do you teach the students to, to think about and to use every day? Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> That'll help. Um, 
So neuroanatomy, yeah. uh, in particular, I mean all anatomy, obviously if we're working with the whole body, yeah. um, but neuroanatomy, um, which again I wasn't particularly good at as a student. I found it all confusing and weird. Um, that was a while but, ago now. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a while ago now. You um, learned it all again, and then you forget yeah, it, and then well, you learn it again. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and that ability to so anatomy and pathology, you know, pathophys is really important. So that ability to read my patients' notes, and you know, they are a day one. Um, sorry, that day one right middle cerebral artery infarct, and for me to be able to anticipate, because again, it's a, it's the acute setting. I'm the first per well. Certainly, the first physiotherapist mm. to see this patient, possibly quite often the first allied health professional to see this patient. Um, no one else has got them out of bed. I have no other info. I might have no other information other than their pathology or where their stroke is or where their tumor is or where the plaques from their MS are. And from that, I need to anticipate what sort of impairments and activity limitations that the patient's going to have. So as I often say to my students and anyone here might remember, anyone, any of my previous students might remember me saying this, but I rarely go in blind to a patient. I rarely go in going, oh, you know, what am I going to find here? And sort of looking at everything and doing every investigate, every assessment under the sun because it's sort of, you know, because I don't know what I'm looking for. Like that's not what I do. I use my anatomy and my pathophysiology knowledge to anticipate how the patient might present. Of course, they don't always present the way you expect, but at least it gives you a base and a framework to allow you to be very accurate and timely, but also comprehensive with your, with your assessment. Mm. And I've always said to certainly in neuro assessments, a huge part of the ball game in neuro, you know, if you can, if you can get your assessment skills and your clinical reasoning skills down pat the treatment's the easy part. It's not always easy, you know. Treatment's not always easy, but but really, it's those it's that assessment and coming out with those key assessment findings and using your clinical reasoning um, to be able to come up with an appropriate treatment to enable your patient to achieve those goals. Um, I think it's really important. Well, that's not just a matter of being an expert and trying to go for the most important things first. It's also a key part of what you need to do to help people at any level, isn't it? Because people sure. with neurological um, conditions often have um, other things going on, fatigue, nausea, for example, and yeah. you can't go in there and I'll, I'll just do everything like I do yeah. every time and spend yeah. too long with them. How long do you spend typically? I, mean, I guess everyone is different. Do you, is it a short yeah. amount of time? You mentioned the, um, the speed of it and mm. Um, and how fast things move. How, how long do you have on the acute wards with people? That can really differ depending on whichever ward you're working on, mm. your caseload for the day, who else is seeing the patient, are they whisked off to radiology halfway through your assessment. My general thought is certainly for an initial assessment, you need at least 45 minutes, I think, especially if you're moving on to, if you're taking, which you should be taking the person to their highest functional level. So, you know, getting them sitting over the edge of the bed, getting them on their feet, checking their, you know, can they transfer out into the chair, um, you know, assessing those activity limitations to the highest functional level, as well as obviously your interview and your impairment testing. Um, yeah. As I said, I, at least 45 minutes would be ideal um, if you're doing it 
again, very much depends on the patient. But if you're doing it in less than that, it's, something's got to give. You, you have to cut corners somewhere. Um, and, and that can be done. You know, that, that absolutely can be done. You can prioritise your assessment such that you're, you know, there are things that you might say to the occupational therapist, for example, I didn't get time to ask about A, B and C or I didn't get time to closely look at vision. I just ran out of time. Um, again, you know, and that, that can be the benefit of working in that sort of very team-based environment mm. or, you know, it, you might need to come and, and come back and see the patient later in the day or the next day. And as you said, fatigue can be an issue too. So sometimes 45 minutes is just too much for a patient because they're, they're either really drowsy um, from the neurological impairment um, or they get very fatigued very quickly. Mm. So what about those ABCs? What specifically um, are some of those assessments that you'll be doing? And I guess to to explain why I'm asking that question where this is a general podcast, we've got an audience of musculoskeletal clinicians. They may have not um, seen anyone with a neurological condition since they're <laughs> in university or they yeah. might have an upcoming placement and have never seen someone with a neuro condition. So give us an idea of what it's actually like. What it, so. Assessment is a big priority, as you mentioned before. Yeah. What are some of the key things that you'll assess? And we can sort of compare and contrast that to some of the mask conversations we've had here earlier. Yeah, sure. So, you know, like all patients, your assessment starts from the minute that you walk in the room or that they walk in the room, depending on your on your setting. Um, so that observation, you know, I walk in and I just make those observations about, you know, and I often fluff around the patient's bed and see if they wake up if they can hear me, you know, if they sort of wake up spontaneously um, or if they, you know, if I need to actually go in and, and rouse them, if you like. Um, in terms of the interview, there's sort of uh, either ends of the spectrum. So you can, if your patient is awake and alert and oriented and able to, to participate in a full interview, then it's a pretty standard interview. It's, it's collecting as much information as you can um, about who this person is. Who this, who this person is before they had their stroke, for example, um, which might have just been yesterday. Um, and then, of course, those history of present conditions. So, so what's happened since the stroke? You know, are you having difficulty? What are you having difficulty moving? Can you move your arm? Can you move your leg? Um, you know, do you feel, what does it feel like? You know, if someone touches you, know, all those sorts of things. Um, that's one end of the spectrum of an interview. The other end of the spectrum is that for some reason, the patient's communication is impaired. Um, and this often happens with patients with neurological deficits. Um, so if they have dysphasia, for example, so if they have receptive dysphasia, so they can't understand anything that's being said to them, if they have expressive dysphasia where they're having difficulty formulating the words, they have dysarthria where um, their speech is very slurred. So they know what they want to say and they can sort of say it, but it's slow and arduous and really frustrating for them because their speech is so slurred. Or the patient might be disoriented and not actually know who they are or where they are or what's happened. In those circumstances, my interview completely changes. It's not an information gathering exercise. It becomes a how do I best communicate with this patient? And it might be that I can't communicate verbally with the patient at all and that it's all um, gestures and handling and demonstration and lots of eye contact and facial expressions and things. So that's the interview. Um, then when we move on to the assessment, because I'm an acute physio, so, you know, you've got two options. You can either 
look at the patient on the bed and assess all their impairments first and then get them up. Or you can get them up first and then go, I think I need to look at the person's leg strength and I think I need to look at their range of movement of their calf. I go with generally go with plan A because as I said earlier, I'm usually, well, I'm always the first physio to see the patient and often the first allied health professional. And even if the medical staff have seen the patient, they've often haven't got them out of bed. Um, and if they have, it can sometimes be a bit of a disaster. And certainly, um, in certainly in in Melbourne, and I think this would be the case around Australia, um, mo- most uh, neuro- neuroscience units would not allow the patient out of bed. The nursing staff wouldn't be allowed to get the patient out of bed until the physiotherapist does. So that's a really long way of saying I assess the patient's impairments first and then I get them out of bed because I don't want any surprises. Mm, and like you said, you I'm, don't go in there blind. You have yeah. a, based on the anatomy, the pathophysiology, you go in there with a really good yeah. preconceived idea of what the impairments might be, planning that yeah. assessment. And then there's a lot of uh, variability between people, isn't there? So neurological yeah. conditions are, I guess, you don't have, we don't have to compare them to musk conditions. We can just, on their own, we can say that they're, heterogeneous in their presentation, but someone yeah. like a stroke, for example, compared to an ACL reconstruction, a lot more variability and heterogeneity between people. So when you're, you know, when you're working, what's it like working, knowing that there's going to be a lot of variability in how people present? Do you, does it give you a greater tolerance of uncertainty or do you have to go in there expecting the unexpected? Yes. Yes. And yes. And to both of those questions, um, it's really funny because that's actually now one of the things I love about neuro. It is one of the things I hated about neuro at uni right. was that there was no recipe. <laughs> We've come full circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and funnily enough, I'm not, uh, you know, in terms of cooking, when I cook at home, recipe all the way. I am, I, give me a recipe. I can cook whatever you like. Love a recipe. Um, I've tried however, cooking without a recipe at home and they, <laughs> they don't eat it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right. I have come full circle. And unlike when I'm in the kitchen, when I'm working with neurological patients, um, one of the things I now love is that there is no recipe. Um, I'd get bored. I've been a clinician for a really long time. And if there was a recipe and if all the patients were the same, I probably would have left the profession you know, however many years ago. Um, No, it's fascinating. The brain is fascinating. All the patients are fascinating. They're all different. That's what I love. Um, Even just people's, the way that people cope with their stroke or their head injury or um, there's so many different facets to it. Um, I really, I find the non-motor impairments, so so the things like the communication deficits, the dysphasia, um, you know, people have sort of confusion or memory deficits or neglect, for example. Um, all of those things I find, they're, they're all challenging. You know, they all, they're really challenging for the person um, and, you know, challenging and, and complex to deal with as a physio, but, but that's what I love about it. But having said that, um, one of the things that, as I've said earlier, I really like is that you're working with these people as a team because as a solo pilot, as a solo practitioner with these often really complex presentations, I'd probably struggle, I think. So mm. working with the team, you know, is really important. And if you're struggling, then everyone else will be struggling as well. Um, 
Mm, that's that's a really interesting insight into not just the textbook presentations of what you might mm. see, but also the you know the perspective of a clinician working. And then in part two of our conversation, we've got planned here. It'll come out the next week, so we can space these out a bit. We're going to talk about physio education and how you communicate these this complexity to students who haven't seen anybody before, yeah. but presumably many of them haven't seen anyone with a neurological condition before, and they may have, and they bring that experience into their training as well. But let's finish by wrapping up with a bit of a summary of, from your perspective, those most important foundational knowledge and skills for somebody who's working perhaps through the lens of looking at acute neuro. And, and you, so you mentioned anatomy, pathophysiology. We had a conversation about empathy and the importance of teamwork and communication. What else? Is there anything else that you would, you can't go to work without that would be, that people should focus on first before they get to the, perhaps the pointy end of the pyramid? Um, your role as a physiotherapist is to enable people to live their most meaningful life possible. So we haven't really talked a lot about patient goals today, you and I, um, always keeping in mind why you're there, why, you, why you're going to work, why, you, why you're setting foot in the front door every day. But then when for every single patient, when you walk in, what is my role here? What is it? Why, why am I here? I don't want to waste anyone's time. I don't want to waste my time. Certainly don't want to waste the patient's time. What is their goals? What are their, um, and usually it, it, it's a bit harder and acute to establish goals because everything is so new to the patient, mm. um, but it's certainly something we shouldn't forget as physiotherapists. Can I can I tell you a story about sure, goal setting? Do. Can I give you a clinical? Um, and this is a story that will be familiar to any of my students. So, you know, I've I've had thousands and thousands of patients, and I've I've you know. Um, have many clinical cases, but this one is really burned into my memory. I was working at a hospital, um, it was a few years ago, and I was a weekend physiotherapist. So I was only coming in for a few hours, you know, like nine, eight till 12 or something on the weekend. Um, because the weekend service was quite limited, we had a, um, we would only see really urgent priority patients, usually neurosurgery patients and, and patients with new strokes who would come in overnight. Um, we got a phone call. Uh, so we got a referral for this particular patient who'd come into the palliative care unit at this particular hospital. He'd just been admitted that morning. Um, he was a person in his, I don't know, probably 60s. He had a glioblastoma multiform, which is a very aggressive, malignant type of brain tumour. Um, he'd had it operated on um, a couple of times already. There was no further surgical options for him. He was um, entering into the terminal phase of his illness. Um and we got a phone call, uh, sorry, a referral to come and see him in the palliative care unit. And when I say we, this is myself and the occupational therapist. I can't remember which one of us got the phone call, but one of us reached out to the other and said, first thing is palliative care unit on a weekend? Really? Um, anyway, we sought a little bit more information about this person. We found out that he was um, indeed, you know, at the palliative stage of um, dealing with his brain tumour um, and that he'd had some sort of uh, sudden deterioration requiring admission. So he might have had a bleed into his tumour, I'm not sure. Um, but his daughter was getting married that afternoon. So we had been called in. Um, he was desperate to go to his daughter's wedding. 
Um, and so off we went. You know, we went to the palliative care unit, as I said, the OT and I, um, we did a very quick assessment. You know, my I certainly didn't do a full impairment assessment. It, you know, this, and my point is about making sure everything you do is targeted towards the patient goals. So we organised a tilting space wheelchair. We got a hoist to hoist him into the tilting space wheelchair. We got a sling for his arm. We got a something for his, you know, we got, had the headrest on the tilting space wheelchair. We organised the maxi taxi. We brought the, the family in to get him dressed into his suit. Um, we made them promise strictly to have him home or back, sorry, back to the palliative care unit at 10 o'clock at night. I think they wheeled him in at 3 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Um, but, yeah, that actually, you know, again, just that, that was his goal. His goal was actually to go to his daughter's wedding um, and to actually walk his daughter down the aisle, which he achieved um, due to, you know, um, great teamwork, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I think always focusing on the patient as a person, um, the patient and their family and their life, I think is, you know, it should guide everything that you do. That's an amazing story. And, you know, I'm sure everyone else listening to it would agree with me that, it's really important every now and again to just widen your perspective beyond what you think you should be doing and just just have a bit of a look around and think, okay, what am I, why am I really here? That's a really yeah. nice way to end this conversation. Um, there's so much more we could talk about. You know, we can do it again. I've got lots sure. of episodes to fill in the future, but we're going to talk <laughs> sure. about physio education next. Um, yeah. But that'll Great. be next week for listeners. So um, I really appreciate the the insights you've given us there, Narelle. It's a really nice start of a many conversations we can have on the podcast if you've got time. Sure. So, of listeners, course. if you've found the intro, if you found the episode as interesting as I have, um, please share it with a friend uh, or on social media. And remember to tag Susanna and I in. So that's at Periton Physio, and you can find all the links to all the different podcast players on our website, which is periton.physio. And you can look at the, the um, snippets of or well, full pod podcast episodes on YouTube. So thanks very much, Narelle, um, for really interesting insights. And I'm looking forward to part two of our conversation. Me too. Thanks a lot, Luke. So until next time, everyone, this is Narelle and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 